My name's Cutter Calloway, and I'm Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Fuller Studio. Welcome to TV and Theology, an audio series in which we construct a theology of television to help viewers more fully engage with the power and meaning of TV. This season, I talk with TV writer and my co-author, Dean Batali. Well, welcome back to another episode of our conversation on theology and TV um, with Dean Batali and Cutter Calloway. Now, now you're not even letting me speak. I'm not even going to let wow, you we talk. we moved now. to that. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's getting late in the season, mm-hmm. and... Uh, the writers are angry at each other. They've been locked in the room for days mm-hmm. um, without food. Um, if you've watched 30 Rock, they're peeing in, in base, mason jars and putting them on the windows. Mm-hmm. No time to go to the bathroom. Um, actually, we are recording this just after a, a lovely lunch. And uh, so hopefully, in spite of the fact that we've eaten, we will still have something thoughtful to say. <clears throat> but uh, we are talking on this episode about the commercial reality of television, um, TV as a commodity. And to to think about this, we're not talking simply about the fact that there are commercials within television. That is certainly one part and a big part of it. But also that any of the television we watch is a part of commercial culture. That is, that it has to do with things that are bought and sold. Um, and so it engages us as consumers and raises the question of what do we consume? How do we consume? Um, and as Christians, <clears throat> what's an appropriate um, Christian way to consume media and specifically TV media? Um, I came across a pretty interesting uh, book that uh, is about television aesthetics. And in there, uh, someone was analyzing Mad Men because it's all about the, the changes in uh, advertising both then and then in the contemporary world and made this really interesting point that advertising is actually contemporary philosophy. So the way that people think about their life in the world is through an advertising lens. Um, So if you want to know how to talk to people, you kind of need to know the language of advertising. Uh, Pretty compelling point, um, possibly to be contested, but I'll throw that out there. Um, Most of the time, when you look at Christian critics um, of consumerism, of capitalism, um, they will lean on the sort of prophetic tradition of the Jewish Christian faith and say that we're supposed to counter um, this sort of capitalist tendency that's all about money-making and consumerism, and that consumerism in itself is kind of a bad word. Um, In a recent book, Prophetically Incorrect, um, Woods and Patton basically uh, have—it's about media consumption in general, but then they have a specific chapter on TV— Um, Here's what they say. They say mass media and consumer-driven, market-oriented economies play a priestly rather than prophetic role in an attempt to attract audiences for advertisers by mainly reinforcing rather than challenging a culture's dominant consciousness. Um, And they argue that North Americans' dominant consciousness is characterized by consumerism. So their point is um, that most media, including Christian media, um, whatever that term actually means, uh, media produced by Christians or for Christians, is playing the role of someone who's coming in and just making you feel good about whatever it is they're selling you. That's the priestly role. 
And their challenge is that Christians ought to function in a prophetic role to, to challenge the dominant consciousness of consumerism. Um, and that's one way to take it. Another way to take it is Craig Detweiler and Barry Taylor wrote a book, now it's been 11 years ago, uh, A Matrix of Meanings. Um, and they raised the interesting question of, yes, everything is advertised and advertising, especially TV, um, but don't we have to consume to live? Isn't there some sense in which we have to be consumers, but it's more how do you thoughtfully consume? How do you um, consume in a Christian way? So how could we think of that in positive terms? Um, so that's sort of the setup for us thinking about TV, its commercials, its commerciality. Uh, Dean, what do you you think in terms of uh, both as a TV watcher and a TV writer, um, how does its commercialism affect both what it means and then how we should think about it? Well, I, I was first going to respond to this priestly prophetic um, okay. comparison because I realized that the church would be a lot more effective if they would be more priestly, if I think I'm understanding the terms correctly, and less prophetic, because you need to sell. If you're trying to get people to respond to your message, you mm -hmm. need to know how to sell it. Mm -hmm. And so there's been this sort of fear of, well, we don't—well, first of all, some people are just like televangelists are purely like propagandic, mm -hmm. and now so, sort of contemporary artists who don't want to be propagandic at all. And as I said in a previous podcast, I think propaganda is not necessarily a bad thing. I think all art is propaganda. And I think if you're a good propagandist, and I don't even know if that's the correct word, but <laughs> it is um, for now. one who presents propaganda, um, you're going to be a lot more successful than somebody who's trying to be subtle or, um, you know, make their message kind of embedded in their thing. All commercials, advertising is generally propaganda. It's written to sell something and generally it's quite effective. So I'm not sure, you know, Sesame Street was developed by advertisers, let's remember. It was, they hired people who had done advertiser who were making commercials and they started educating instead. Imagine if the church had done the same thing and actually tried to sell our product with people who were skilled at selling a product. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. creatively, it might have been a different different sort of thing. Um, so I, I think that, well, one of the broader issues here is that at least until recently, and by recently, I mean about 25 years. So actually for the first half of television's life, um, television was and essentially still is simply a delivery system for the commercials. Mm -hmm. um, it's all the only reason, you know, it's the television that's the filler, not the commercials. The only reason commercial television exists is so you will watch the commercials and buy the products that are advertised there and go see the movies and drink the beer and drive the cars. That's how I think of lettuce. Lettuce in a salad is really just the tool to get the salad dressing <laughs> the in the mouth. The delivery yes, system yes, for, the, exactly. for the dressing, yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, so whether or not you're watching a show, it may, you know, a show stays on the air because not because of it's good or bad or valuable or not or creates empathy or not. It's only are there enough people watching that you can get people to buy advertising. It's similar just to define some terms here. When you get into non-commercial television like um, HBO or Netflix or anything where people are subscribing to these stations or channels or delivery systems, you it's I. I still consider that commercial television because they are still selling the product. The product in this case is the material mm -hmm, instead of the mm -hmm. toothpaste between the material. But you still have to appeal to enough people so that they will then subscribe to Amazon Prime or Netflix or whatever to watch those shows. Which is why, by the way, something like Netflix um, spent so much on House of Cards. They, they spent like $100 million on the first season mm -hmm. of that show, which is about 10 times more than, well, 20 times. 
seven or eight times more than a network would for the same Again, amount. Again, not a math podcast. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, but that was to get people aware of Netflix and to get to subscribe to Netflix. Um, so it really is, you know, you're the product that's being sold now. You're the products being bought and sold on uh, instead of the actual the actual things on the commercials. So so in that sense, you have to realize that they're going after a broader market. You know, broadcasting. You're going after the not necessarily lowest common denominator, but you are going toward a common denominator. You have to have a show on the air that gets enough people um, to watch it. Now, what's interesting today though is that you used to have to appeal to 30 million viewers. And now, as we've said, you only have to view, appeal to one million. So we have a lot more shows that are uh, creating a lot more niche audiences. That so you can have a successful show that's on the air that never would have on the, been on the air years ago, um, um, because it's you can almost be a little less commercial than you used to be. Now, in one sense, in a broader sense, we talk about this how that affects society. That means that. Out of 100 people out there, all 100 of them could be watching 100 different shows, mm -hmm. right? Whereas 100 people 25 years ago would have been watching at most four or five different shows. Mm -hmm. So you kind of see possible separation of our culture, um, which is why you find that camaraderie when you find a person who watches that little known show mm -hmm. that you're watching that's on the Sundance channel or on Bravo or something like that. Um, but it does. I mean, it, it, it drives... What, become, what ends up on television in a way that I don't think the viewers really understand enough. Um, we got to get a show that's going to appeal to a lot of different people, a lot of different kinds of people. You know, CBS appeals to the people who want to watch procedurals and JAG and these kinds of things. And so they just have more of those kind of shows on the air. Uh, AMC is going after certain audience. MTV is looking for shows that are going to appeal to their demographic. Um, so they're not going to go outside of their box very often. And again, we've talked a lot about worldview. You get a kind of myopic view of what the world is. If all you're watching is MTV or all you're watching is CBS, if all you're watching is CBS, you think that you're going to have a one in three chance of being murdered by an axe <laughs> wielder, right? Because there's so many death, so much death and violence, really, when you think about it. But the crime will eventually be solved. Um, and I think that kind of plays into, well, what kind of shows get on the air and it's, you know, it has to appeal. Every time I pitch a show, it's, well, who's going to want to watch this audience? Mm -hmm. And I'll say, I mean, I've pitched to shows about people of faith, teenagers of faith specifically. Well, who's going to watch this show? And I say, well, the 50% of American teenagers who are in church or synagogue every week, most of the people in Hollywood don't know that figure. Mm -hmm. And most of the people in Hollywood don't, don't acknowledge, well, not that they don't acknowledge, but they don't understand an audience of thoughtful people of faith. Mm -hmm. They look at people of faith as kind of being judgmental and protesting. When you, know? you said to me before about <clears throat> even if they did acknowledge it and that group really is there and they are readily watching it, often they're not the demographic because they're not the people with the kind of disposable income that Correct. actually they're targeting. You know, and it's, you know, they, they, I, I, was, I was pitching a show once, I was talking to a show, show about uh, people of faith to my agent. And he said, well, but Christians aren't consumers. <laughs> and I almost, you know, dropped my Pepsi on my Nikes, as I've written before. <laughs> um, but, you know, th there is this perception that um, uh, people of faith don't like as much as money as, as other people and um, are not interested in consuming as much. And let's be honest here. Mm -hmm. It is somewhat true. More families of faith might have, you know, a stay-at-home parent and few, less disposable income. And if we're being true people of faith, we actually have 10% less income mm -hmm. to consume with than our neighbors who have more money to spend on beer and cars and movies. And you know what? Christians probably spend a little bit less money on beer and cars and movies. And those are the three things that drive the audience on television. So there is a little bit of truth to this, yeah. but Christians also consume as much toilet paper and yeah. toothpaste as anybody else. So this and is a different idea. If the other stats are right, only 20% of Christians are 
giving that 10%. Correct. Right, 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 right. So there, there is so, that. But there is that perception yeah. of, of what is the Christian audience and what do they want to watch. And um, again, that's a different sort of thing. But it gets down to the people who decide what goes on the air. And I think it's a... Um, a little bit of a closed system. Hollywood tends to want to be seen as kind of cool. They want to put on shows that their friends will watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to talk about the show Seventh Heaven because one of the stars was accused of some um, very uh, bad activity recently, actually admitted to some bad activity. But that show was the number one show on the WB when I was working on Buffy and Dawson's Creek was on the air. Um, it was the number one show for teenage girls in America. It was the number one show for women 18 to 49 mm-hmm. But I guarantee you that no executive in Hollywood ever went to a party and heard these words. Oh, I love Seventh Heaven. My family and I watch it all the time. <laughs> they said, oh, I love Dawson's Creek. I love Buffy. So Hollywood wants to do more shows like that. So you see how this, you know, yes, television is commercial driven, commodity driven, economic driven medium. But there's also a little bit of coolness driven yeah, and yeah. and uh, what people think of me yeah. driven. And that's how shows get on the air as well. Or even ideology. Um, yeah. I, uh, the Wire is a good example mm-hmm. um, that I've read that it did not have a good following. It was not a moneymaker. Um, and it's HBO. Yeah, uh, it's HBO. And part of the, the, the pitch um, to HBO after I think the second season um, by the writers uh, was that don't you want to beat the networks at their own game. Um, don't you want to do a really true, gritty, honest take on inner city life and, yeah. and crime and and the drug war? Um, you can't do it on network television, and that's why it's not profitable. So they did it because they knew it wasn't profitable, yeah. but it's because they wanted to make something that basically stuck it to the rest of yeah. the industry. And don't you want the kind of people that watch they are going to watch the show to be watching your network? Exactly. So exactly. it really is just the, the cool kids at the party yeah. are going to come to the HBO party. And yeah. so it, it, that, that's where it gets a little more complicated than just popular shows and there's an audience for these kind of shows. Now, I will say at this moment in time, I think we're opening up a little bit more. I think that, um, you know, with all these different delivery systems, you can have websites and streaming services that appeal directly to um, um, different different groups that did. I actually was, um, uh, um, Netflix is now, I'm sorry. Yes, Netflix has a big deal with DreamWorks for to provide mm-hmm. animation and family content to Netflix. And I was actually in there to talk about doing VeggieTales because DreamWorks owns VeggieTales mm-hmm. and they want to put VeggieTales on Netflix now. Years ago, when VeggieTales aired on NBC, there was a little bit of controversy because they took Jesus out. Whenever mm-hmm. they would take, talk mm-hmm. about Jesus, they took God out. When, well, Netflix is now saying, bring us all the Jesus you want yeah. when you bring VeggieTales mm-hmm. to us because they know that the audience that wants to watch VeggieTales is targeted and specific. They don't have to be as broad anymore. Mm-hmm. They can get back to their roots. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting example of what might be happening with other kinds of shows. Yeah. We can be a little more targeted. You don't have to broadcast as much. You can be a little more narrow-casted and still yeah. be successful. It's interesting. And in in, 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 I think it was an advertising book I read, and I'm going to mess this up a little bit, but basically said it's a, s- a strange paradox, but in a world of only three or four options. So <laughs> in the network world, you need to be as like the others as possible to compete against them. In a world of a proliferation of options, you need to be as uniquely voiced as possible. Interesting, yeah. So that if we're thinking about how do Christians, quote-unquote, advertise or or, or really just tell compelling stories to this world, um, sort of getting rid of what makes us unique is the least helpful thing in some cases. Um, So pretty interesting uh, perspective. Um, Talk about you. You you mentioned uh, House of Cards and 
some of the differences between interruptive commercials yeah. and, and others. Um, it's interesting to me that, uh, for example, my wife and I, we watched Scandal, which is a, uh, a network commercially interrupted show. Um, but we streamed it on Netflix. We've never watched it. Now, mm. there are still fade to blacks right. in those that are the commercial breaks, and it's very noticeable. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some failure in that, in that when it translates out of those interruptions. Whereas if there was an actual commercial, it seems like it would have made sense. Yeah. But the fact that you remove it is is distracting. There's also, though, this phenomenon of where some of those breaks still happen, even in a House of Cards mm-hmm. or whatever, that, that some of those conventions carry over. Um, is that... Is that part of what just is now sort of TV language, yeah. whether or not there's a break or not? I think so. You know, I've never worked on a sh- well, I did work on a half hour show that didn't have commercial interruptions, but it was developed as a web series. Um, I still think that we think in terms of what are our act breaks and whether it's, you know, it used to be four act breaks because an hour long show was told in four acts. And then it became five acts as they added more commercials and then six acts. So I'm working on a show right now that's told in six acts. Um, it, it does affect the storytelling and in terms of how it affects meaning, you know, something big and exciting and twisty has to happen every seven or eight minutes. Well, that's not the way things are in real life, <laughs> but it might set up the way things um, are supposed to be in real life. I, I heard a speechwriter uh, for uh, a president talk about how anything more than 22 minutes and Americans don't understand. I mean, mm-hmm. they just kind of tune out because mm-hmm. that's the length of a sitcom and that's kind of what we had learned you know, people in the 80s and 90s learned how to experience life. Um, so it, it does affect things, and it does storytelling. It does affect storytelling. Um, certain network shows are kind of getting away from that. Or I'm sorry, non-network shows on cable. Um, but you're right. There's still kind of leftover feeling of uh, there should be a commercial here, even though there isn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, I think it affects story. I think it affects meaning. I think it affects um, how we anticipate stories to come. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If that's embedded in us intrinsically or whether or not, you know, when they first started making movies, I think the length of a reel was 11 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. So all these serialized shows became 11 or movies Mm -hmm. became 11 minutes long and maybe even 22, but it was a short amount of time. And so that's where the cliffhanger, the the literal word cliffhanger came from was going to happen every 11 minutes. And then you'd come back next week. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's still sort of. You know, if we're still see, hearing the echo and the fallout of that in our, in That's our interesting. <laughs> Well, and, and <clears throat> you know, it, it's a fun sort of uh, mental gymnastics to think about chicken or egg. But the sort of challenge we face is it is. Um, yeah. And so uh, people both think in terms of not just commercial interruptions, but commercially. So um, if, if we think in even 30 second chunks, you know, you've got a 22 minute sort of uh, narrative or attention span. Within that, you have some others that something compelling has to happen. And then those breaks are filled with really compelling, visually and emotionally provocative narratives in their own right yeah. um, that are telling us even other stories. And as people who are, <laughs> again, in a context where ours is but one story among other very viable options, um, it's interesting to think instead of just saying, kind of like what you're saying, um, instead of simply thinking prophetically and critiquing it all as um, as misguided and, uh, you know, all about money, right. it could be more, well, how does that shape the way we think about life? That is the biggest issue. And how does it uh, shape how we receive information? Mm-hmm. As we, and as mm-hmm. we bring things back to the church, you know, 
are there any pastors who realize that every 11 minutes they should shove something visual into their sermon? <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily a commercial, but you know, pastors who do think this way yeah. are going to be a lot better yeah. communicators. I had a, a worship leader in the past. He, he led music and he told me, I, I'm Southern Baptist, uh, born and raised and ordained. So I'm long-winded, and uh, <laughs> and I think what I have to say is pretty great. And uh, he said, Cutter, you're a great speaker. Um, love your content. It's wonderful. He's like, but I don't care who's talking or how great they are. After 20 minutes, I'm just done. I can't I can't take it. And, yeah. and that really transformed my preaching of saying, oh, I've got to find ways. Um, and, and without being reductive, too, without like doing a disservice to the biblical text or whatever we're, we're talking about and studying— um, to to tell a story in 20 minutes that is engaging, um, that's concise, but that opens itself up in ways that um, is different than if you've got an hour or, four, you know, whatever right. that is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, for me anyway, thinking about the commercial nature, there is that element where there's just crass commercialism. Yeah. And it's simply to get your Pepsis off your night, yeah. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a simply uh, a reality that, that we're facing of this is how people think about and and. Uh, ingest information. I will say too, in terms of even the commerciality, what I'm fine. I've, I saw some some uh, some studies even recently that even though our generation, the generation now, is used to consuming information in really small bites, you get into YouTube and Vine and things that you know are just a few seconds long or a few minutes long, or web series that are seven minutes long. They're also used to an ex more expansive world. So something mm -hmm. like Lost or The Simpsons or Breaking Bad or Buffy, for that matter, they're watching and they they actually like to absorb the hundreds of hours worth, yeah. even though they want to consume it in, in shorter bursts, they're able to, they like to absorb the longer serialized version of this. And back to a couple episodes ago when we talked about participatory media, that mm -hmm. now, more so than before, consumers interact with it. Yeah. Um, they, have, yeah. they have a role in shaping it. Um, and that's a bit different than 40 years ago when it's just buy this soap, yes or no. You know? Right. Um, product placement here. Yeah. So. Um, well, <clears throat> again, very brief uh, reflection on uh, commercialism. There's, there's a lot more there. Hopefully we've raised some uh, questions for you to think about. And uh, I know we still uh, are, are processing it all. Um, but I hope it sparks some, some conversation and dialogue in your own community and your own heart and mind as you think about how do we tell stories compellingly? How do we understand stories that are commercial through and through? And whether or not that's all good or all bad or something in between. Uh, catch us on the next episode. Same bat time, same bat channel. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.